a Dadsnet original podcast. Welcome to season three of the Diffability podcast, brought to you by the Dadsnet and Get Cycling. All kinds of cycles for all kinds of people. Head over to getcycling.org.uk forward slash Diffability to find out more and to book your own demo. I'm Paul and this is Michael. Hello. And we are parents to four children. Our youngest boys are Lawton and Lanson and our eldest twins Levi and Lucas who are diagnosed with autism and epilepsy along with other complex disabilities. And together we are the Atwal Bryce family. In this podcast we'll be taking a look at a range of different conditions that could affect your children and speaking to experts from various organisations to get you the best advice out there. In this episode, we will be tackling ADHD, a disorder that has been around forever, but only now are people starting to understand it fully. We previously did an episode with Jacob from ADHD Father UK on Instagram about his particular journey finding out later in life, but this time we wanted to approach the subject from a different angle. We spoke to Catherine, who is ADHD underscore coach underscore Catherine on Instagram. And she is a specialised ADHD coach. We asked her all about the diagnosis and of course got her tips for parents raising children with ADHD. Today we've got a great, um, fabulous lady who's joining us and Catherine. So Catherine, what we're going to be talking about today, because we know quite a bit of information about you, is ADHD. You are a ADHD coach. And I know a lot of our followers are also aware of you, but today we're going to be talking about the diagnosis, how it all works, and just talking about it so people have a clear understanding on what actually ADHD is and how it affects children, young people, adults, and also families together. No, thank you very much for getting in touch. Um, I'm delighted to to help. Um, I think one of the one of the questions that um, you mentioned there was diagnosis and how to go about getting a diagnosis. And I think that's it's really variable depending on where you are in the country and how old the young person that you're talking about is. So the first thing that you would notice is what's going on with your, your child, with your young person, with yourself, and look at things like, are they being impulsive? Are they lacking attention or focus? Are they unable to complete things that you would expect them to manage at their age? Are they extremely daydreamy um, in an extreme uh, level? Because, you know, we, we do hope young people have got imagination and go off and have their own wee thoughts. Um, or are they extremely physically active and hyperactive? It's the one that most people think about, first of all, or is there some emotional um, dysregulation that is out of what you would expect for their age and stage? And I was thinking about it last night, and I think this is really difficult for two reasons. The first is, if you've only got one child, or it's only your first child, you've got no benchmark for what you would expect at a certain age. And it's not maybe until they get into primary school or a wee bit further through primary school and you're thinking okay other kids in their class are managing this 
but they're not. They're they tend to be quite bright. You know, the kids that I, I speak with are clever, they're funny, they're smart, they're creative, they've got these big, big hearts. But there's just something that's different from the other kids round about their age. And that is why people tend to be a wee bit older, seven and up, before you want to really look for a proper diagnosis. Um, and the second thing that makes it difficult is it's very heritable. So parents quite often don't notice things because that's how their family is. And I'm actually working on a paper just now for the international, I can't remember what it's called, International Conference on ADHD in Baltimore. And I'm looking at ADHD in generations because parents might spot this struggle and take their kid to the GP or whatever and mention it to their parents and their parents will be like, but this is normal. I was like that, or your brother was like that. And you think, well, it's very heritable. There's a reason. There's a good chance if you've got AD, if you've got a kid with ADHD, at least one of the parents is going to have some traits somewhere, or their brother or sister or their parents will have it. So um, that was the first thing that I thought of. Is that all quite clear? Yeah, it's quite... It um, resonates a lot yeah. with a lot of families we know. Mm. Um and family members as well, too, close family members to us. And I, I, think, um, I think publicly there's still a lot of work to do with regards to ADHD and people actually understanding it and grasping it and being able to process it in their own minds and accept what ADHD actually is. And is it like, like we find in schools now there's a lot more children under diagnosis or getting diagnosed or are diagnosed? And that is that mainly because Catherine probably the past generations they were just put down as naughty children and and yeah so the, it, oh, it's yeah. always existed, hasn't it? But it's just it wasn't diagnosed back then. It was just put down to them being naughty and fidgety and not sitting still and yeah yeah and, yeah. and there's a, there is a lot more awareness now, which is great and it's great that you were doing what you were doing and with your social media pages and stuff and putting that information out there. And that's what parents really need. That's what everybody really needs, more information so they can spot the signs and get and get the help early because we all know how long it takes to get onto the cams waiting list and things like that. So it's really important, this podcast, and we really thank you for coming on. I think, um, like, as Michael's just mentioned, though, cams, I think um, mm-hmm. professionally, <laughs> I'm trying to remain professional here when it comes to cams, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> The, the waiting list and the times for CAMs within the NHS are absolutely appalling. And when yeah. you have families that are at their wit's end and they are desperate to, to just get some intervention and some help because they're managing these children and trying to parent them in the correct way and they feel like they're failing as parents and that impact mm. is spreading throughout their siblings as well. Because don't forget, this affects the whole family. It doesn't just affect, exactly. just doesn't affect that one person. If your family of four, it's everybody within that household that is having to manage it and deal and try and understand it as well. And then you have the issues with the waiting lists with CAMS as well. But we also know a lot of people have had to pay private to get those assessments because CAMS waiting list is just absolutely horrendous. Yeah, and that's not necessarily CAMS' fault. It's the lack of funding into yeah. and the sheer amount of people needing diagnosis or yeah. some support yeah what um 
So I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions and I want you to answer them as honest as you can. So what should parents be looking for in their children if they suspect they may possibly have ADHD? Okay, so I think the first thing to look out for is things like um, they can't start or continue activities. They have very poor short-term memory. They can't block inappropriate responses. And I have to hold my hand up and say, when my medication isn't working or I'm really tired, <laughs> any combination of the above, I do say inappropriate things. Um, they have trouble organising themselves or their work. Um, they're maybe a wee bit more physically active. They have problems with sleep. That is so, so common. Um, and things like, you know, <sighs> emotional outbursts, you know, really huge rages that are almost out of nowhere and then seem to go away. Um, and as well as things like struggling with their schoolwork and struggling to sit down for the length of a TV show. Um, it, it's a very broad range. and That's why you do need somebody professional to do the assessment and because there are other things that look like ADHD, but those are the top ones yeah. that I would look for. Yeah. And do a lot of people actually get ADHD and autism mixed up because they're very, very similar? The traits can be very similar depending on that child, young person, or adult. And um, yeah. when you're trying to find an answer for something mm. and you're so desperate, it's very, very difficult, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think the no, I I have dyscalculia, so I get the numbers the wrong way round. But there's a there's something like a fifty percent number of people with autism who also meet the criteria for ADHD. It could be the other way round because my brain is like that. But the the numbers are extremely high, and I would imagine that as time goes on, the DSM, the diagnostic criteria, is going to show changes to how we diagnose either one of them because there is such a strong overlap for instance things like a lot of sensory preferences you can be ADHD and have a really strong sensory preference but not be autistic and that can be really confusing because we think of sensory profiles as an autistic trait so it is really really difficult for people to separate them out and I always say focus on the person and their needs rather than ticking the boxes. But when you're getting a diagnosis, you can't do that. So, you know, but if you're a parent, look at the kid in front of you and what they need rather than, well, you know, that doesn't fit this box or that one. And a, and a lot of parents, we do know this personally, some, the one to diagnosis, but even once diagnosed, nothing really changes, does it? It's like it's just a label to the child or the person. For the rest of their nothing's, life. Nothing's going to change. There might be some like, medication support and stuff, but it's still going to remain, yeah. isn't it, just because they've been diagnosed. Obviously, it's still, still going to stay the same, isn't it? And I think a lot of parents and carers think that you get their diagnosis and then, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I do, because I remember that very clearly. Um, without saying too much personally my, my, my own daughter was diagnosed many years ago now and we thought when she had a diagnosis that things would change and it didn't it didn't there was no help and it's one of the reasons that you know I am where I am today but 
I would say that it's important to get the diagnosis because medication for ADHD is actually, when you find the right one, it is life-changing and it's really important in terms of their social skills, their um, academic work, their ability to go out and get employment. 17% of people with a disability, like an adult with a disability in the UK, are un- are employment, in employment, 17%. The rest of us, it's kind of hit or miss, and that's not good enough. And we know that people with ADHD who receive treatment younger are less likely to end up in the criminal system, to leave school early, to end up having you know babies too early, or to indulge in kind of addictive substance-led behaviour. So it's really important, even if nothing else changes, because then you can advocate and say, by law, you must provide this. You know, if you're dealing with the school, you can say, this is part of your legal responsibility. You must re- provide adequate education. So on the one hand, nothing changes and you still have to keep fighting. And I think that's the most difficult thing for parents is that we fight and fight and fight to get the diagnosis. And then then what? Yeah. Then you have to keep fighting. Yeah. And that's really yeah. hard. That's yeah. really, really hard. It shouldn't be like that. Um, and it's really, I feel really sorry for the CAMS teams as well because generally they want to do the work because they care and they want to make a difference. Yeah. It's so underfunded and so overstretched, and then they burn you, and the turnover of staff is horrendous. Yeah, yeah I mean, we noticed it with his own boys, um, Levi and Luke. Mm. It took us like over 10 years for them to get accepted because they'd always say, it's part of their autism, it's their autism, it's their autism. But actually, they had a really bad anxiety as well, and it was causing them a lot of problems, lashing out, um, getting really upset, agitated. And now, since particularly one of us boys, Lucas, has started on medication... It has been life-changing. Yeah. Yeah. Because it were awful. They were lashing out at TAs and us mm. and slapping and hitting, and it, and it didn't... And that wasn't the boy yeah. no. he knew. no. No. It wasn't Lucas, no. and soon as he started vacation and, and it got into his system, it's like mm-hmm. the child there's no there's no lashing out now. So it like tears were like it it whack you in the face and it would really hurt, wouldn't it? That he's severely autistic because so. he's really loving as yeah. well. So naturally, mm-hmm. you want to be around him, kissing and cuddling mm-hmm. him, and and then when the just anxiety used to set in, yeah. it used to be you know just an instant like awful. yeah. yeah. Slap the walls and really like charge and it were awful, but he's like a different child now. So that medication is really important, isn't it? But it did. But I feel like we, as a lot of other parents, had to suffer. Mainly Lucas had to suffer, yeah, yeah, because it wasn't Lucas, and that medication has just really helped, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, Yeah. so, So, which brings me on to my next question: Is what help is there for parents of children with ADHD? Okay, so this is a difficult one because it depends very much on where you are in the country. Um, And so I was thinking about it and I thought, the first thing to think about is what help do you actually want? What help do you need? Do you need somebody who's going to help you in the house? Because we know that with ADHD, things like clutter and disorganisation a, it's almost impossible to avoid because of the way our brains work, but it also makes us feel worse and it makes that emotional dysregulation worse. So do you actually need someone practically to help you at home? Do you need someone to help with kind of 
setting up a bedtime routine or you know, is it a physical type of help you need? Is it a group type of help you need with other parents where you can go and talk and be understood and not judged because, oh my God, the judgy parents. Oh my God. So do you need moral support from other parents? Do you want professional support from someone like a psychologist, a therapist or a counsellor or a coach? Because there's a lot of trauma for parents who have kids with ADHD. They may also have ADHD that's undiagnosed and have that anxiety and depression that doesn't lift and isn't treated. And so there's a, a space for professional help. And then there's obviously people like me or there's books or you know programs. There are you know, different types. But in the UK, um, I would go to places like ADHD UK, um, ADHD Adults, um, there's the ADHD Foundation. You know, there's these big national uh, organisations and they're doing their very best. In Scotland, there's the ADHD Coalition. Lots of these are run by volunteers. And so it's, you know, it depends on what you need, when you need it and what you're looking for. Um, internationally, groups like CHAD uh, in the United States are fantastic. They have lots of local groups. There's ADDA, uh, which is wonderful for adults. They all, and it's quite a low membership fee. They also have lots of courses you can go through yourself at your own pace. Um, so there's, there's lots of help out there, but it might not be what you need. And sometimes you just need someone to listen and to understand. I think, and, and not judge. That's exactly. Yeah. Somebody, somebody who just just listens and lets you offload mm. and doesn't judge, that's massive. It's and I think that's what we're, so in our early days with Leroy and Lucas, when they were getting diagnosed for autism, we got put on the National Autistic Society Early Bird Programme. And that was the first time we'd been with other parents in the same boat. So we're all talking about children not sleeping, being really difficult to feed them different foods and all the things to do with autism. But we, we felt less isolated. We felt, yeah. So you know what I think in this country? I think there's a lot of, a lot of people know these words ADHD. A lot of people know the word autism. But realistically, a lot of people don't actually understand it. Yeah. And get it. And just because you've met one person with ADHD, that doesn't mean you understand it. It's like autism. Somebody who's got autism you've met previously, that doesn't mean you understand it. You know, the spectrum is just so huge and massive all the time, and everybody is just so different and diverse. But I do want to ask you. So, 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 you know, with regards to the diagnosis, Catherine, would you just say, get in there really, start knocking on the door early, obviously, because the waiting list is so vast? Yes. The earlier you can approach somebody like your GP for a referral, the better. Um, ADHD UK have a fantastic page about diagnosis and they go into great detail about it. But basically, you want to have as much information prepared before you go to your GP. So things like if you've got siblings, you know, if you've got two or three kids, what's different about this kid? Make a note of the things that you're concerned about and that you are aware are not kind of on a par with other people their age, go to your GP and ask for a referral. If they say, we've not got the resources, you can say, well, nice guidelines state that you have to place an individual funding request. In Scotland, unfortunately, they don't do that. You're at the mercy of your local 
NHS board. And then from there, you'll either go to um, Right to Choose in England on at the moment only um, NHS waiting list or try and find a private diagnostic clinic. And then you've got the, is your GP going to do shared care or not? Um, so it's, there's no easy path and it's yeah. ridiculous that this is happening. The trouble is with younger children, camp mm. don't actually, won't accept children to their six. Well, that's, that, that's where we, that leave, differs, where differs we are. Yeah. Yeah. I so, think that's the difficult thing, isn't it? The postcode lottery. Yeah. So CAMS won't even entertain the, the family until that child turns six. But then you think right. that's a big a big long slog of managing behaviour. And that's before you can get on the waiting list. Without getting any intervention that's needed. Mm-hmm. And everybody, and we know as professionals, everybody talks about early intervention. But then that mm-hmm. just, yeah. you know. It's a huge gap. And I think on the one hand, I remember our experience of being in that first six years and thinking, what's going on what what do we do and and being told well you just have to wait because i think sometimes they want to see if this kid is going to catch up or if this is a parenting problem or this is an environment problem or you know, what's going on so that on the one hand they don't want to give a kid a label too early and i can see that point of view but as a parent and as you know somebody who's watched a young person really struggle by the time they're six all the social skills problems that are a hallmark of the isolation that comes with ADHD are pretty well entrenched and it takes much longer to undo that. I totally, totally agree because therapy, psychological therapists and everybody else will tell you how the brain mm-hmm. forms early on, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, I just think none of this actually makes sense. I'm, yeah. I'm not saying, you know, we should diagnose children at the age of what. But what I'm saying is some intervention services should be a lot more on hand and accepting mm-hmm. and willing to help and look at situations on an individual basis to see what they can actually do. Even because if, the yeah, brain is yeah. the early years of childhood where the brain is forming and everything is just so important. Yeah, even if they just had like yeah, if they just had a named person like an ADHD nurse or whatever that pinpointed parents to different support groups and gave you tips and advice, you know, just something to tick you over until you get like more uh, a diagnosis and a bit more. But yeah, there doesn't seem to be anything like that. And Catherine, yeah. what are your top three tips for anybody who's listening to this, where they might be listening and? Underneath the whole exterior, they're actually struggling as well and wanting just to get some advice. Also, yeah, we're, we're talking about children, but there's also a lot of adults. Yeah, they're finding that they've mm-hmm. got they've got the traits and the and the but the the want to diagnosis and that waiting list even longer. Isn't so it? then, a, a lot of adults are paying private as well now. Yeah, for adults, I think the situation's even worse. I've heard some places they just don't have a waiting list because they've closed it they're not going to diagnose anybody some people are waiting four or five years so in in those circumstances I think it's especially damaging because by the time you get to an adult with ADHD that's not been diagnosed there's so much else that's likely to be happening for you 
financially, in terms of work, in terms of relationships, all of these other things are impacted by ADHD. And there's a there's a campaign run by some friends in York who are actually, I think they're taking them to court or something. There's some legal challenge about it because nationwide the service is on its knees and we just, you know. So my top three tips for adults or kids with ADHD and parents with ADHD. The first one is to really understand what ADHD is. It's a neurodevelopmental difference that means that your brain is fundamentally different. You've got too many um, dopamine transporter Hoover cells that suck up all the dopamine and you've got less dopamine to begin with. So that's the that's the basic understanding, but it also changes the structure of your brain. So the, the messaging from input to the processing logic part is 20 to 30 milliseconds slower. And that is a huge length of time for following instructions, for um, making friends, for stopping smiling if somebody isn't smiling, all of that. It's a difference. It's not something that they've chosen. So understand as much about ADHD as you can and find reputable sources people like Dr. Barclay, ADA, CHAD, um, ADHD UK, those kind of places, rather than even people like me, because, you know, I do my very best and I, I don't say anything that isn't true, but I can't guarantee that for everyone who's online. So find out the best information you can about ADHD and accept that it's not a choice. And that's very difficult um, to process because sometimes it might look like a choice and sometimes it will be because especially with teenagers they're teenagers but they're three or four years younger in some areas than you think you know, a 16 or 17 year old that's struggling to study for exams is actually 12 you wouldn't expect a 12 year old to focus for hours to study for GCSEs and organise their own homework so learn as much as you can about ADHD is my number one tip and go past all the the froth online. The second thing that can really change how you function as a family is to learn about collaborative problem solving. Dr. Ross Green developed this uh, method of communication and you can find all the resources for free on the website. Um, hang on, I've got it written down because my brain is having one of those days. It's called Lives in the Balance. So livesinthebalance.org and you can get all the information you need about collaborative problem solving. And it takes the, it just shifts the communication between parents telling ADHD kids what to do and possibly ADHD parents telling ADHD kids, kids what to do. And quite often the kids will push back because they don't understand why you're asking them to do this. They don't think it's reasonable. They've got a different way to do things that makes sense for them. And if we're feeling a bit dysregulated emotionally, which most of us are because it's tiring, then we push back and then poof, poof, there's this explosion. So there's a seven-step process in collaborative problem solving that I think is crucial for parents to learn about. And when they learn about it, then they can go to their kids and discuss it. And you know, it's not like you let them do whatever they want. There's always going to be firm boundaries in place, but it just changes the, the, the kind of dynamic in the family relationship. And it's much more about communication because 
there's this tendency we have when we're anxious to get really rigid and actually that doesn't help it doesn't make them feel safe and that brings up their anxiety so collaborative problem solving learn about adhd um try not to go reward chart or timetable crazy and i know this is a controversial one um there are a couple of reasons that i don't do reward charts one is in my experience most kids with adhd get bored very quickly of them <laughs> and they just and then it's another thing they failed at and then it's something that you feel that as a parent. So just, you know, you could try it, but try it as an experiment with absolutely no expectation. Um, and with timetables, it's really hard because we want to keep everything organised. Yes, bedtime, breakfast time, even meal times can be set in stone. But if you're expecting them to do things, keep in mind that three to four year lag. So is your 12 year old actually seven? Um, are they going to be able to follow a bedtime routine on their own that you would expect a 12-year-old to manage? If you want to try it, use photographs of them, not written instructions, not numbers. Um, make it as visually appealing and get them involved to design themselves. Um, and again, you know, make things really visual. So that kind of transition thing that a lot of parents and kids struggle with use visual timers. There's a great one I saw last week. I'm going to get it for myself. It's like traffic lights and it gives you a countdown for when you need to move and stop doing something. And that takes the pressure off of parents being responsible for the prompting, which frankly can get annoying for them. Um, use a music track, you know, pick a nice tune and this is your tidy up song or this is your brush your teeth song. And when this is done, when this is over, you're in bed and you know over time they will accept those cues because it's an external thing and it's it's that thing about we want to use charts and visual timetables because it's an external thing and that is helpful but it needs to be done in a way that makes sense to them and quite often what I see is parents making charts that make sense to the parents so it's you know the kids have got a different way of thinking and if they're not involved in designing what what is going to happen, they just won't get it. And then you'll get frustrated because you think, well, I spent all this time, I got all these bits of clip art, I did this Pinterest thing and it's all lovely and it got you know and it doesn't work. It doesn't work because it works for your brain, not theirs. And even in ADHD, like you say, there's going to be a big variation in terms of what works and what doesn't work in between. Yeah. I think those those three points are just excellent. I mean, even, you know, hearing you talk now, I feel like I am learning more and more, you know, with how you're you're describing what to do or what might work to do, especially with the timetables, whereas... And I think sometimes as well, even ourselves, where we be like that, where we do the visuals, you know, for us to understand, rather than we actually remembering, you know, this needs to be the child that's yeah. focusing. And then we're, we're thinking, well, why doesn't he understand it? We've got the visuals and, and all those kind of things. I think sometimes yeah. it's just those little reminders just that, so. that we all need every now and then. Yeah. 
Well, Even like with, with us older boys, with like pics. Yeah. We we prefer to use actual photos of the object rather than the standardised pics because, yeah, a, a, a bottle of juice on a, on a general photo is not their bottle of Vimto. So we always use the actual photos. And or reference to object yeah. we use. You know, I, I think it's about, it has to be tweaked to your own family. Yeah. Everything does. But I do want to ask you before we finish this chat, uh, for anybody that's listening uh, here on the Diffability Podcast, where can they find you on social media? So I'm on Instagram, um, ADHD underscore coach underscore Catherine. So ADHD coach Catherine or online um, lightbulb ADHD on my website. And I think I'm on Facebook, ADHD coach Catherine and TikTok and threads. So I'm all over the place. <laughs> Yeah, you'll find me. Get Cycling focus their service on customers' individual needs. A lot of the time, ADHD can accompany other conditions and they make sure that what they suggest works for that individual. All the staff at Get Cycling are trained around neurodiversity and the team come from different neurodiverse backgrounds. Plus, Get Cycling offer cycle scheme options to get children riding. Whatever condition your child has been diagnosed with, Get Cycling can help that get them out and about on a specialist bike. Head over to getcycling.org.uk forward slash diffability to find out more and to book your own demo. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Diffability. If you have enjoyed this podcast, found it useful, or even just learned something new, please consider leaving us a rating and a review. It helps to get this show out even more where parents really do need that support. And take a look through the back catalogue. There may be more shows in this series that can help you in your journey raising a child with their very own disability. Thank you.